in which we hear God speak to us through his word. And this morning the reading is from Luke chapter 19, uh, found on page 1052 in the church Bibles. Should be in the seats in front of you. It's Luke chapter 19 and we're reading from verses 1 to 10. This is the word of God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and, and to save the lost. This is the Word of God. Good morning, everyone. Great to be here. Great to see you. Just before I commence, let me say that Martin, our treasurer, has put together the third quarter treasurer's report. It's in your bulletin. And if I can just say to everyone who has contributed towards that in terms of giving, a very big thank you for your generosity. Um, we were way behind budget in halfway through the year, but through a couple of significant, generous, very generous gifts, we're actually in front now. Uh, but let me just say, as we think about the end of the year and going forward, we still need to increase in terms of giving for the church. Uh, and so I just bring that before you. So let me pray. I'll, but I do commend you to read it. Uh, it's just a good high-level summary. If you've got any questions, please come and see me afterwards. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be here today. And we thank you for the incredible generosity that you have showered on our hearts and minds and lives through the Lord Jesus. And may that <clears throat> incredible grace transform us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we have said at the start, it's fifth week in. We've got six weeks for this series, Burning Hearts. I've loved being here. I've got this week, next week to go. And the, the theme has been, uh, under Burning Hearts, has been revival. And it's an issue, a theme that I've been deeply interested in for many years of my life. Um, and we saw in the first week, Psalm 85 verse 6, the great prayer for revival. Will you not revive us again that we might rejoice in your love? And the word revival we saw is from a Hebrew word, and I love it, it's hayah. Uh, and it, it means to come alive. It's used in creation of someone being born, being brought to life. Uh, and it's being used spiritually in the, the psalm, that prayer, to come alive in God. And revivals are times when people come alive through the gospel and they're alive to God through the Spirit. And what I want to do is tell us three stories about how this incredible message of the gospel brings people to life and transforms them by the grace of God so that they are incredibly generous. Because one of the marks of uh, 
receiving the gospel of grace and coming alive in Christ is that it totally changes us so that we are generous with all that we have. And whenever you see historically revivals take place, you'll see a revival in all sorts of things, but particularly in the way people give towards the gospel and people in need. And the first story, if I can have the uh, screen changed over, comes out of Stuart Piggins' book, which uh, is The Fountain of Public Prosperity, which documents the influence of evangelical uh, Christians in the country. And he particularly has chapters on all the revivals that took place in Australian history in this 100-year period that he looks at. His second book is coming out uh, next month. And when you read the book, what you discover is that the church that was on fire had been touched by the revival of the 18th century in England through the ministry of John Wesley, and they became what was known as the Wesleyan Methodists. And that was the denomination here in Australia that literally was on fire for Christ. And whenever the uh, country went out and more towns were established, they were the ones at the forefront to bring the gospel there, and they grew enormously. Now, eventually they brought some overseas evangelists in, and one was a guy called William Taylor, or William California Taylor, he was from the States, first overseas visiting evangelist to come to Australia in the 1860s. And great things happened under him, revival followed his preaching ministry and he documented some of the um, great periods of his ministry here in Australia, including being at Mudgee. Now I want to tell you a story of what was called the Orange Peddler, we don't know his name, um, but he was out preaching the gospel in regional New South Wales and he says, you know, the impact on this person's life was actually not through my ministry, it was through the church. Uh, the Wesleyan Methodists, who loved this guy and brought Christ to this guy and he came to faith and he wrote in his book about him and he said that um, basically the church brought him to Christ and then helped him because he was homeless, he was a uh, drunkard, uh, good for nothing at one level from a societal level and they gave him a job and they gave him a business selling oranges and you mightn't think too much of that, but it really got this guy established in his life. Now, a couple of years later, um, the church, the Wesleyan Methodists, are building a new building, they're growing, and they have a big day where people bring their gifts in to give towards the building of the building. And we've got that day next week in terms of giving towards mission and pledges for ministry here. Now, we're not going to do what they did then. They literally would ask them to come forward and put their money on the, what they call the holy table up the back. And one by one, people would come up and bring their money up. And anyway, this guy comes to the meeting two years later, three years later. Or I don't know actually how many years later, but it's a few years later. And he dumps this big pile of money on the table. And he said this, these kind Wesleyan people drew me out of the horrible pit of drunkenness. They led me to Jesus and he saved me from my sins. These people bore with me and kindly led me, showed me Christian sympathy and love and started me in business. And then on the screen, I love these words, God has prospered me and today I want to put on the table all of my earnings in the orange trade above expenses as a thank offering to God and to these people for the kindness to me. So all he'd done was go out and sell oranges. He put 250 coins on the table and the, the, the congregation just kind of gasped and they all thought they were copper coins until they looked closer and they were gold coins. Gold sovereigns. And basically, he just 
through what he'd earned, he'd looked after himself, he says, here, you take it, it's yours. Build this church, grow the gospel. And you see, his whole life was transformed from a homeless drunk to a successful small businessman. His heart was transformed from bitter and twisted to thankful and alive. His focus was transformed from living for himself to now living for Christ. And his giving was transformed from using money for himself to buy alcohol to now generously giving it to God's kingdom. If you've got your Bibles there, let's open up. We're going to look at our second story. It's Zacchaeus. It's Luke chapter 19, verse 1. If you've got the Bibles in front of you, it's page 1052. It's another wonderful story of how a person is transformed by God's grace. And it leads to them being incredibly generous. Let me read from verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Zacchaeus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. We're at Luke chapter 19. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he will die for the sins of the nation and the sins of the world. He is travelling through Jericho, which is where Zacchaeus was stationed. And Zacchaeus had a very significant position there. And there's a number of things to note about him. Um, as you think about Zacchaeus, firstly, he was powerful. As the chief tax collector, he had enormous impact in that town. And people literally would have been in fear of him because of his power to extract money from them under the protection of the Roman government of the day. So incredibly powerful. He was also incredibly wealthy. Uh, the Romans, the way it worked, they might say, we want 5% of people's tax, and Zacchaeus would go, okay, and he would then go out and he would charge 10%. And he'd give 5% to the Romans, and he'd take 5% for himself. Good little business he's got there. Now, because he's a chief tax collector, he's got his minions working for him, who are just the regular tax collectors. And if they charge 10%, well, you could just see Zacchaeus would take 2%, they would have 3%, Rome would have 5 Now, that's not the exact numbers, but that's how it worked. And so he's got a lot of money. But because of that, you don't have to think too hard. He was excluded. He was not liked. And he was Jewish. And he's taking money off his Jewish brothers and sisters and giving it to the, what they would have thought were the filthy Romans. He didn't care. He was just filthy rich. But the result of it was, you see, the Jewish people basically thought they were the, the worst of sinners. And they were excommunicated from the fellowship. In fact, when you read Jesus talking about someone who is difficult and sinful and rebellious and will not listen to the church, he said there comes a point where you actually have to exclude them and he says, treat them like a tax collector. Okay? In other words, they're the lowest of the low and they were totally excluded. But the problem is for Zacchaeus is he's empty. He's got all this power, he's got this position, he's got this money... But he's got to the point of just despair. And he hears about this Jesus, the God-man, the one that God has been speaking through and doing miracles, and he just wants to see him. And you can see inside of him, there's just this spiritual hunger and emptiness. I'm sure he couldn't quite put an exact word on it, but he just knew he needed to see Jesus and he needed to connect with God this chief tax collector who was really this chief sinner. 
But he's got this problem because he's short. Now, I don't want to have a go at short people, but... Um, <laughs> not looking at anyone, Scott, anyway. <laughs> he's got to climb a tree to see because he's too short. So he climbs up the sycamore tree, which you think of the position he had. This rich, wealthy, powerful guy is up there in the tree trying to see Jesus. And we read in verse 5 and 6, When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And I want you to note a couple of things here. The chief sinner... While Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus, Jesus seeks him. There is no one too far away from God's love. And Jesus didn't just seek Zacchaeus, he accepted him. And one of the most profound ways you would show acceptance in that society, and that culture, was that you would have a meal with them. And in this incredibly symbolic and powerful way, Zacchaeus experiences the acceptance of God as God literally comes and breaks bread with him at his table. And that's why what we do with our homes and our places where we live is so important in terms of welcoming people in. It's why it's so important here at church that people are welcomed in because it's this profound sign of acceptance. And Jesus seeks Zacchaeus And he accepts Zacchaeus despite his sin, despite his status, despite the way everyone else thought about him. Jesus says, I am going to eat with you. And Zacchaeus is overjoyed. And what you have here is the most beautiful picture in story form of what the gospel is. That someone who is thought to be unsavable, unreachable, outside of God's reach and despised by the people, God comes and saves through Jesus. And brings him in. Now the people in verse 7 are not happy. All the people saw this and they began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And you see, that they know what's happening. That this man, the one they want to see, Jesus, is now eating with that man. That sinner. And it was outrageous. Now, the story is powerful if you stop there. But it's not the end of the story, is it? Zacchaeus knows what they're saying. And he knows the mutters and the gossip that's going on. And after lunch, he comes out and says these profound words. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord. So he looks at Jesus and he says, Look, Lord, here and now... I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. I was talking to Andrew Graham today, and he said, yes, where are the Zacchaeuses of the 21st century? Because, you see, it is a profound transformation that took place through one meal. As he encounters the love and the acceptance of God through Christ, his whole persona, his power, his wealth, it's just stripped away and it just melts. 
because he discovers something far more profound and significant and real and lasting, which is friendship with God. And the other stuff, literally, he just goes, I don't care about anymore. And he knows what they're saying. He says, yeah, I don't care now. I'll give half of it away to the poor. And make a line. Because if I've ripped you off, come on up and see me now and I'm going to pay you four times back. I imagine the queue was pretty long that day. <laughs> it's astounding, isn't it? And you see, this is what happens when a person receives the grace of God. They are transformed. And what we think is important changes. How we view life changes. How we view our money changes. How we view possessions changes. And his life was transformed from this powerful, corrupt businessman to a new person in Christ, making right his past sins. His heart was transformed, empty and alone, to thankful and alive. His focus was transformed from living for himself and building an enormous pile of wealth to now living for God and his kingdom and being incredibly generous. And his giving was transformed from taking money to use for himself and ripping people off to now caring for the poor and making amends for his mistakes. Let me tell you a third story. It's the story of two Johns. You probably know the first John, John Newton. Who's heard of John Newton? Now, if you're here for the first song, which I always recommend people come for, we sang his most famous song that he ever wrote. It's called Amazing Grace. There's a whole story behind why we sing that. Uh, if you don't know the story of John Newton, he was a famous English um, Church of England minister. But before that, when he was young, he went to join the Navy at age 18. He ended up getting sacked from the Navy, ended up in West Africa in a slave plantation looking after the uh, slave trade. He got sacked from that because of dereliction of duties. He ended up poor, in chains, under arrest. When he wrote to his father, he said, I was just like the prodigal son. And his father sent help and the gospel. And he came to faith. He goes back to England and becomes a minister. Full of the joy of the Lord. And he's out in a place called Olney, which is 100 kilometres north of London. Now, not far today with modern transport, a long way from London in that day and age. And he grows his parish from 200 to 600 regular attenders. And in that period, he writes his autobiography, which is called A Authentic Narrative. And it's the story of his conversion based on the story of the prodigal son. And it's picked up and it becomes a famous story. Now let me say, this is the period just after the 18th century Great Evangelical Awakening with the Wesleys uh, and the Whitfield. And one of the men who was converted as a result of that revival is a guy called John Thornton. He is the other John. And John Thornton reads this story of Newton. John Thornton was converted through the Clapham sect, if you've heard of them, um, and his heart is on fire for Christ. And he's experiencing the afterflow of the 18th century Great Awakening. And he's incredibly rich. Now, at that time in England, what would happen is, um, basically, churches often got owned by lords 
and rich businessmen. And they would have the control of who went into the pulpit. And there was a thing called the livings. And they would pay for the livings. And so it'd be like if in St Matthew's here today, there's a very wealthy person and he said, Bruce, you're now going to be the minister of St Matthew's and I will pay your way. And he kind of answered to them. Now, what happened was in England, most of the ministers were corrupted. They weren't converted. They were dead in their faith. And they took these jobs under this system of livings through the royalty, the nobility and the landowners. And they weren't interested in preaching the gospel. They were interested in politics. They were interested in hunting or just having a good income. Uh, Sometimes they would set up a few curates to do their work and they'd go to Italy and just enjoy life over there. And Thornton, his goal was to put converted men in the parishes who would preach the gospel. And so he meets Newton. And Newton's up in the country and they start corresponding, wrote an enormous amount of letters that you can read today through a book called Gospel Patrons. And Newton's encouraging Thornton to use his money for gospel causes. And a parish comes up in the centre of London, St Mary's Woolnoth. And Thornton says to Newton, you're now going to come to the city because you are going to influence the city. And because of this man's generosity, Newton went to the city. Newton had begun writing lots of hymns. He said, you're going to publish them. And the only reason we have the song Amazing Grace today is this. Thornton said, you're going to publish them and I'm buying the first 1,000 copies to give away. And the songbook took off, particularly number 41. And you know what that one was, don't you? Amazing Grace. But that's not all this man did with his wealth. You see, he was so touched by the gospel, he wanted to see the gospel go out and he wanted to use his money that he had to prosper that cause. And John Newton was just one of the men that he raised up. There's all sorts of influences that you can read about with John Thornton but just from John Newton's ministry did you know this he took on the role of mentoring young men and women in the gospel and from his discipling of them these are some of the people that came out of John Newton's ministry because Thornton paid for him to come to London have you ever heard of William Wilberforce effectively came back to faith under Newton and was encouraged to go into politics and worked for the abolition of slavery. There's a female, Hannah Moore, a similar story, who worked alongside Wilberforce. Anyone heard of Charles Simeon? Put your hand up. Young evangelical, encouraged in his faith by Newton. He goes to Cambridge University and has an enormous ministry among students. Do you know what he was a founder of? CMS Missionary Society. The society that we support for Dave Painter. Anyone heard of William Carey? William Carey was also mentored by, guess who? John Newton, because John Newton was in the city being sponsored to do his work. William Carey, if you don't know, was the father of the modern missionary movement. They told him he was crazy to go to India. He said, I'm going. And he took the gospel over there and began a wave of missionaries. Anyone heard of Richard Johnson? Oh, our church history is not too good this morning. Um, He is the first chaplain to Australia, came out in the first fleet. And guess what? He was a converted clergyman, an evangelical. 
He preached the first sermon here in Australia, Psalm 116, What shall I render unto the Lord? Guess who he's tutored by? John Newton. I'm going to read you a summary of what one of his closest friends, Henry then said. And Henry was the minister who led Thornton to Christ. Few followers of the Lamb have ever done more to feed the hungry, clothe the naked and help all that suffer adversity and to spread the savour or the aroma of the knowledge of Christ crucified. Were there but 1,000 loving Christians of great opulence in Britain, like-minded with John Thornton, the nation would be judged and convinced of the good operation of the gospel. By the time of Thornton's death, the Church of England that had long been barren and dead to the gospel was now alive and exploding with growth and his generosity and vision and leadership had enormous part to play in it. He was a man who'd been transformed by the gospel of grace, just like Zacchaeus just like that orange peddler. I think one of the deepest idols of this world today is money. And let me say, it was the same in Jesus' day. He said, it is the root of all kinds of evil. The Apostle Paul said that, the love of money. And Jesus said, you can either love God or you can love money. In other words, it's this deep love that people have. And what these powerful stories illustrate is this, when the grace of God in Christ touches a person's heart, it actually liberates us from this idolatry of loving money because, you see, we love money because we trust it and we think it's going to give us security. We love money because we think it's going to give us enjoyment and pleasure for what it will do for us. But when you discover Christ, you find there is an eternal security that nothing can take away from. There is a joy in knowing him that nothing can surpass. I love Nehemiah. He says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And revivals are times when... People's hearts are touched powerfully by the gospel and there's always this outworking in all sorts of ways, including with money that people give generously. And it's interesting, when you look at the New Testament, um, the church when it took off was a church that was alive in Christ, in the gospel. It was a, they didn't have a revival because they were already alive. We're going to come to what happens by the end of the first, ten, uh, first century period next week. But biblical giving starts in the Old Testament with 10%. And I know for some people, they look at 10% and they choke. Just saying the words gets stuck in the throat. <laughs> you talking about giving 10%? Uh, and I was talking to one of our members this week and they'd been to see a financial planner and they saw this 10% figure on their um, giving and they said, what's that for? Well, it's our tithe. And they said, you could get an investment property. (laughs) No. Well, here's the thing. When the gospel comes, that 10% got blown up. You see, they stopped talking about tithing basically after Jesus' ministry. And the only explanation is it gets blown up because... They just want to give more. Their hearts are so liberated. They have so much joy in Christ, so much purpose in terms of what they're now living for. They go, we just want to give. And that's what Jesus said. Don't store up riches on earth that are going to rust, fade, be stolen. Store up riches in heaven that will never perish. 
And I'm going to give you one example. It's from the Macedonian church. They were, in financial terms, a poor church, struggling. But they'd heard about the mission-giving operation to support the mission in Jerusalem that the Apostle Paul was seeking to raise finances for. And Paul writes to the Corinthian church to encourage them to give by telling them about the Macedonian church. And he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And you see that word, see, grace takes hold of you and it's this power to liberate us, to serve God. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, they're overflowing with joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. In other words, they got nothing, but you know what? They want to give everything. Like the orange peddler who just put it all on the table. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, And verse 4 is just profound. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 4. Do you hear what Paul's saying? There is this privilege that we get to be a part of, which is sharing what God has blessed us with. Because all that we have is from God. And we have the incredible privilege to partner with others in ministry by being generous financially. And that's what Thornton was about. He Apparently he gave away 50% of his income. And you think about the riches that are stored up in heaven because of that. And Paul says they pleaded to be involved in the privilege. And see, we have a privilege to partner with people like the painters. Dave is one of my heroes, Dave Painter. He's a friend of mine personally. I used to play on the cricket team with him. We went through youth group together. And he's been there 17 years. Learned the Khmer language, training a new generation of leaders to reach the Cambodian people after the incredible decimation from the Pol Pot regime. And I have the privilege of supporting him and that ministry. He is our partner. I want you to get out these cards. Everyone's got one in the bulletin today. And here's my application for us today. I want you to take this home and think about how you are going to support the ministry here. That's one side, regular offering. And then over and above giving, mission offering. And this is what we do. I, I, I give a tenth here to St Matthews to start with. And I work it out every year. I haven't worked it out this year. I try and make sure it goes up every year because we want to grow in generosity. And then over and above that, I want to give to mission. And I want to support our mission partners. And I was talking to my wife, Kathy, and uh, I didn't ask her, I didn't tell her what I was thinking. I just said, what do you think? She said, I just think we should be more generous. And I thought, same thing. Now, we've typically given $3,000 to our partners. And I said, why don't we just give $5,000 this year? I thought I should listen to my own sermons. But God just put that on my heart. Just give. And I love what one of our members said. And let me just read it to you. 
regarding finances, my breakthrough came when God rammed home to me that the money I earned is not through my individual brilliance, but rather the talents he gave me bearing fruit in earning money. Therefore, it's all God's anyway and was never mine in the first place. So to use it generously to bless others as you can. When we've done this, we always seem to get more and have never had to worry about it. God definitely blesses the generous. It's freeing, it stretches you, it deepens your faith, it blesses others and God. And so let me encourage you as uh, you think about your own life. And I want to ask you a couple of questions. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Okay, very important question. Do you know that the Lord is good to you? Do you know the experience of his grace through the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? Do you actually know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that? Do you know the reality of eternal life and that we have it certain for us through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you know this, I encourage you, give towards the spreading of the gospel and the alleviation of needs for those who are poor. Be generous to the ministry here. Be generous to our mission partners. Be generous to those in need who are poor. And I encourage you, just be generous. And let it flow. Let it flow. Let me finish with the words of the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. After encouraging the Corinthians by the example of the Macedonians, he finishes with these words. He says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Think about that. The one who is actually the richest person of all history was the Lord Jesus. He owns everything. And what did he do for our salvation? He gave it all up. Not 10%, not 50%. He gave it all up. He became poor so that you, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Friends, that is the grace that we get to experience and that we have in Christ. May our hearts, may our lives, may our wallets be transformed as a result. Let it flow. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the incredible generosity that we experience in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for that unknown orange peddler from Mudgee and his incredible generosity. I thank you for Zacchaeus, who when he encountered your love and grace and acceptance and forgiveness, was totally transformed. I thank you for people through history like John Thornton, who have prospered the gospel through their giving. Father, may we be generous with what we have. May we give generously here to support the ministry to our mission partners. We thank you for each one of them. And Father, may you just fill our hearts with joy so that we would know the blessing of generosity. Let it flow. In Jesus' name, amen.